0: I'm very happy to introduce um, today's speakers. I'm especially happy that Jim McIntyre is with us. He's been the superintendent of the Knox County Schools, I'm sure you all know, since July 2008. I hear over and over how very much people in the community like him, and that is not to your face, I'm sure, but I hear it, so it's true. Um, Dr. McIntyre has uh, served in the field of education for over 20 years, both in K through 12 and the university settings. But most recently, I think we all know that he came from the Boston Public Schools, and me personally, Boston seems like the intellectual hub of the universe, so to have someone from Boston come to Knoxville, I think is a wonderful thing. He holds bachelor's degrees in English from Boston College as a library person. That's wonderful. Master's in science in education administration from Canisius, that, and um, a master's in urban affairs from Boston University and a Ph.D. from the University of Massachusetts. Dr. McIntyre is joined today with two of his colleagues from the school system, Anissa McDonald, who's a supervisor of coordinated school health and Lisa Wagner, who is the Supervisor of Health Services. So join me in welcoming our panelists for today's discussion.
1: Well, thank you very much. Um, I am delighted to be here with you, as I know my colleagues are, and um, just uh, excited to have uh, a conversation about what I think is a very thought-provoking and interesting uh, thesis, in uh, Last Child in the Woods by Richard, I believe it's Louvre is how you say it, is that correct? Does everyone, anyone know? I think it is. I guess where uh, I wanted to start is, well, why are you doing this? Um, you're the superintendent of schools, you've got 55,000 children to worry about, and I do worry about them every day. Um, uh, why are you here talking with a group of folks at the library? And I, I think it's really twofold. One, I think it's important for us as educators to really model the type of behavior that we want to see in in others, in other educators, in parents, and in children, and to really take some time uh, to read a book, (laughs) to talk about it, uh, to think about it, to to promote literacy, uh, to promote uh, intellectual discussion, to promote the exchange of ideas and thought because we think that's important for kids and that's what our job is all about and that's what our business is all about. So uh, first of all, it's really about promoting literacy and promoting the exchange of of ideas and and discussion. Um, The second part is because the book is about kids. It's about the well-being of children. And uh, and so we thought that was uh, a useful and productive use of our time uh, to read about that and to have some discussion with you all about what that is and what that looks like. Um, I do have two children of my own, and uh, they were thrilled that I had homework. Uh, so uh, <laughs> they kept asking me, how many pages do you have left? How many pages you left? You're never going to make it. But I did make it, so I'm, I'm proud to say we did read through the, the book. I hope some of you have as well, because what I'd like to do is really make this more of a dialogue than uh, a monologue or... I don't know what it is for three, a trialogue. Um, what we'll do is is Anisa and Lisa and I will start with um, just some introduction. And then what I'd like to do is kick off some questions and, and some ideas. And I know many of you have uh, either read the book or you have lots of ideas about this issue or this concept of nature deficit disorder. So let me just talk about what I think the book is about and what the central thesis of it is. Um, so from my perspective, it's really about... Um, the author really trying to do a couple of different things. One is to um, talk about, uh, and really try to document, I think in a lot of different ways, much of it around uh, research, the benefits for children of interacting with the natural environment, the benefits to young people's health, to their ability to uh, exercise, and benefits for issues like childhood obesity, uh, the benefits, interestingly, I thought, for things like creativity, sort of the idea of wonder and imagination. Um, I think the author laments a little bit that perhaps children today don't have the, the as great a sense of, perhaps as prior generations may may have. Um, the benefits for uh, mental health to relieve stress. The author even cites a couple studies about. Kids who have more interactions uh, in the natural environment, who who interact more with nature, are less likely to suffer from things like stress and and perhaps even depression, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, The benefits around uh, things like mental acuity and awareness of one's surroundings and one's world, uh, the ability to, to notice details and to try to make sense of that, to see things in our world and, and think about them and how they interact together and fit together. Um, and even toward the end of the book talks a little bit about the, the benefits for kids uh, uh, who interact more with the natural world in terms of spirituality, understanding that there is something larger in the world than just they themselves. Um, so I think the first part of the thesis from the author is really about trying to um, promote the benefits of kids being out in nature, interacting with the natural environment, interacting with the natural world, and try to document really a lot of what those different benefits may be. I think the second part of the thesis is, at the same time, uh, documenting and, and again, I think to some extent lamenting that kids are, are interacting less with their natural environment than they have in the past, um, that the um, issues around concerns of safety, issues around the way that our cities have developed and the way that our suburbs have developed and the way that um, our society has developed has led to, uh, and, and the dawn of electronics, quite frankly, has led to more, more kids being indoors, perhaps for much of their leisure time rather than outdoors for much of their leisure time, which had been the norm for generations uh, in the past. The author talks a good bit about how that shift has occurred, and why that shift has occurred, and um, what the challenges are that, that go along with that. And then I think the third part of the thesis is really about, okay, so, so what? What, do, what does it mean for us? What are the implications for our society? Um, why is this a bad thing um, that our kids are, are not interacting as much with uh, the natural environment, with the natural world, and what do we do about it? Um, what are some ways that we do about it in terms of um, structuring our cities? our um, suburbs, the education of our children, uh, structuring our society in ways that may um, either reverse or mitigate some of those dynamics that the author talks about in terms of kids not having the same level of opportunities to be involved with the natural universe uh, and to, to have opportunities in their early lives to achieve that sense of being part of a larger uh, world, and also that sense of wonder, that sense of awe, that sense of imagination, um, that sense of having um, less structure in their lives and more opportunities to uh, follow the stream, as he, uh, as he so eloquently says a couple of times, uh, to where um, where learning may happen in, a, in an organic, if you will, fashion, in a natural kind of way, uh, in ways that will really benefit kids. So toward the end, I guess the last third or so of the book is really talking about some solutions or some ideas or some, um, I guess a vision of of where we as a society could go to try to mitigate some of those dynamics that have occurred and, and to move toward a future where kids have more opportunities to be engaged with the natural environment and the natural world and really have the opportunity to benefit from those interactions in ways that prior generations perhaps have. So that's, that's sort of, I guess, the meat and potatoes of, of the whole thing. Um, I, I have lots of reactions, as I'm sure many of you do, um, from a variety of perspectives, um, from my own experience as a parent, as an educator, and um, I'm glad for us to get into all of that as we get into the discussion. But I, I do want to give Anissa and Lisa an opportunity to talk about just their first thoughts about the book and reactions to it and anything that I missed in terms of just a summary of the, of the content of the book itself.
2: Well, I'm very excited to be here today. It's so great to see so many people interested in this issue. And I know when I got the call to um, participate in this, I just heard the title, Last Child in the Woods, and I thought, I wonder why Dr. McIntyre invited me to be a part of this, and it just took a couple of flips through to understand exactly why he had asked me to be a part of this. And then I looked on the title of the book, and wow, it says Nature Deficit Disorder. It was a terminology that I had not heard before. Um, So this has been a a wonderful learning and growing experience for me as well. So I'll tell you a little bit about why this connects to me and my job and, and me as a parent as well. I work with Coordinated School Health and, and is the mission of Coordinated School Health to improve student health and their capacity to learn. Uh, and we do that by working with schools and families and communities. And this book talks a lot about how it's all our responsibility, our children's health. It's just not the schools or the communities or parents. And really it's, it's going to take all of us to come together to make a difference in issues such as these. But I really enjoyed, uh, examining and thinking and reflecting about nature uh, as I read through a lot of this book. It caused me to think about how nature was very much a part of my life growing up. Um, I grew up spending a lot of time on my grandfather's farm in Kentucky. And so this was just a part of my life. And I look back on it now and I realize that part of who I am was established because of those experiences that I had in nature and being physically active and, and just being observant and problem-solving. I love in the book, it talks a lot about building forts and being creative in nature, and I really appreciate that portion of the book. And I realized for my own child that, you know, you really have to be, I think, intentional about being in nature, um, if you live in our community, um, we are fortunate to have wonderful parks uh, and recreation facilities, but it's not just as simple as opening up the back door and and uh, just staying gone for hours and really interacting in that environment. We have to be more purposeful uh, with our children and really, as parents, be the role models for interacting in that nature and, and getting out there with them, and the benefits you know, it's not just about the kids. It's it's beneficial for us to be out in nature as well. It really helps us put things in, in perspective. But I really enjoyed uh, some of the discussion about the influences of the lack of nature, not only on childhood obesity, but also on our mental health and issues such as ADHD. Uh, that was very interesting to me. And I really, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of the obesity rates, uh, in our school system, but I'll quickly share that with you. Almost 40% of our students are either overweight or obese. And so, uh, Part of the job that Lisa and I have is to monitor the prevalence of obesity along with the Knox County Health Department, and that's been happening since about 2002. We're really lucky to have a couple people from the Health Department here, so I'd like to publicly thank them for all their support uh, with the Body Mass Index screenings. They've been terrific partners um, with the school system to to help with that. Just left from a a screening earlier this morning, and it it is truly um, concerning that we have so many children in that unhealthy category, and it's the primary focus of Coordinated School Health to really encourage healthy weights. And this is an excellent strategy to really look at, and and this book has caused me to think about how I can incorporate more of these strategies uh, within my job function.
3: Um, First of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me, and I'm so happy to be here. Uh, When I first read the book just like Anissa, I said, last child in the woods, nature deficit disorder. What does that really have to do with me? But when I started reading the book, just over in a few chapters, I understood because so often, like when I was little, you know, I got to go outside and play. Um, I didn't live on a farm, but um, I was very active. But nowadays, children don't have the opportunity because Everything is so stressful. Everything is so structured. If you haven't read the book, it talks about that a lot and how if children have free play, um, nothing structured, they don't have to go to hockey games or anything like that. But if they have free play, it enables them to be more creative. It also, um, decreases the risk of ADHD. And one of the chapters in the book, I can't remember, um, it talked about how some children um, who were diagnosed with ADHD that um, they were allowed to go outside. And um, one parent uh, reported that uh, when her child got to go outside and was allowed to do free play, that he was much calmer. So um, this book has really opened my eyes and um, I know when I'm out in nature that it gives you a different perspective and it does have a calming effect. And like Anissa said, we are doing uh, body mass index screenings. Um, and in my role function as Supervisor of Health Services, I'm concerned about all of the children's health. Nature does play an important part in their health.
1: All right, so this is the brown bag uh, green book series. And I've got my green suit, my green tie, my green folder. And we're ready, we're ready to go for our, our green, green discussion here. Um, just react for me, if you would, to the concept of nature deficit disorder for kids. Um, the author acknowledges that's, a, that's sort of a loaded term. Um, it takes uh, you know, some of the, uh, the terminology that we're already aware of in the medical and psychological community of, of a disorder or a deficit disorder and puts it, I think, purposefully to sort of turn a phrase and, and make it uh, something that, that is provocative um, but I'd love to hear folks' reactions. What about nature deficit disorder in children today resonates with you? Um, what doesn't ring true? What do, what rings hollow for you? Um, or or does that seem like a plausible dynamic that's occurring in society today? Uh,
4: my name is Bill Weibel, and and I uh, I guess my my initial response to what you've uh, said it is it sounds to me like a very trendy term that would get a lot of attention and and sell books which which is good I mean that's a it's a good thing uh, I think uh, I would agree with some of the panelists I and mean, what your sentiment is is you know um, I spent most of my time growing up in St. Louis in the woods it seems like either running around on my own or with our my friends and and my own kids very rarely <laughs> Very rarely have done that, and and they 're growing up I mean you know it 's just you don 't have to listen to country music very long to know that times have changed and you know our our <laughs> the way we grew up is different how kids grow up i mean quite frankly, they get driven to events, and times are different where kids do not get outside unfortunately, and I think uh, we need to force it. you really have to push it to get kids outside and expose them and and I'm excited that you know the uh, from you know, downtown the education system pushes that too because it's so important. And if we don't make time for it, then I think kids will miss out, and they don't even know what they're missing out. Unfortunately. So, do you mind talking a little bit about why?
1: So, why is it different for kids today? I mean, you had you had experiences as a child where you were out uh, in the woods, you're out in nature a bit. And you said your children don't do that as much. What are some of the dynamics or barriers that, that uh, play into that?
4: Well, I, you know, I think, gosh, you know, when you, you go to schools, you, you see maybe three bikes at a school. When I would, you know, yeah, there'd be hundreds of bikes at a school when you went to school. I mean, kids rode their bikes to school. Nowadays, people drive their kids to school. I mean, it's just parents rightfully so i'm not saying it's a, uh, it's a bad thing but rightfully so our control where their kids go and what their kids do and and i think part of it is that uh it's the environment we, you know we where we live in i mean uh, you take your kids to sporting events and clubs and activities whereas when i think in in earlier time kids did that more on their own and uh and i think it's replaced that but i think what's gotten pushed out is that time out in the woods and the time in the, uh, in the uh, outdoors, which, which kids enjoy and learn from. Yeah.
5: Thank you. My name is Judy Gibson. I have read the book and I'm quite excited about it. I think one factor that, uh, that he talks about a lot, and I feel a little like, what do we do about it? is we are so much more aware now than when I was a child, or a lot of us were children, of environmental impact. That we have I mean back in the day, children could go out and dam up streams or cut boughs to you know make their their woodsy bed and stuff you can 't do that in the environment anymore we 're protecting so much of our environment and appropriately so, but where does that leave children to experiment and and try things and one of the things I think Lou suggests uh, is. You know, maybe we should set aside some little places where they can dam up streams right, and right. see what happens right. and <laughs> cut down branches and stuff. But this, this is very difficult now because we're so aware of what's happening in our environment and what our impact is. And I think we thought it was endless back when I was a child. You know, the trees would always be there and, and, and that is, it sort of traps us in a way. We have to, have to expose children in a different way, to, we don't even let them touch stuff now because, oh well, gosh, you don't touch the the turtle because you might get a disease. You, you know, gosh, we used to catch them, you know, and take them home, and you know, all of that. It's safety and and the environment and awareness of disease and our protection of our children has kind of boxed them in.
1: I, I want to come back to that because that's a really interesting theme in the book, and and the author is. I thought, frankly, kind of conflicted on it uh, in terms of wanting to be an, uh, a naturalist and an environmentalist um, in, in sort of today's sense, but also lamenting the fact that his kids can't really build tree houses because it damages trees and they can't, you know, they can't dam up streams because it changes the, you know, the, the, the ecosystem. And, and I, I want to come back to that because that's a really interesting and, uh, and important, I think, dynamic in, in the conversation. But... Want to get some some more reactions?
6: Hi, I'm Don Barger. I work with the National Parks Conservation Association. Uh, We were formed in 1919 to try to help promote the parks, and this is a really different world we're living in today. But I can tell you that just about every really good park advocate that I've ever encountered will tell you a story about something that happened to them before they were 12 years old. Uh, it, It ingrains and imprints in a way that uh, I think that the author really gets to, and that is that the experience of discovery is an entirely different mental experience than Googling something that someone else discovered. And I, and, and I think that's at the very core of it. Ken Voorhees is with us uh, today from the Tremont Institute also, and uh, they're really at the front of what I think is a, a national awareness uh, of this issue. For the last year, my organization, NPCA, uh, convened uh, what was called the Second Century Commission. Uh, Senators Howard Baker and Bennett Johnson were the, the co-chairs and it included people like E.O. Wilson and Sandra Day O'Connor and John Fahey, head of National Geographic, a lot of folks, that really looked at the entire future of the National Park System. And I have the report here. One of their principal recommendations was that the the that all of our uh, natural areas and cultural areas that are in the national park system need to really engage uh, and be seen as part of basically branch campuses of the greatest university on earth? Uh, there's 392 units, and they are really proposing a uh, a major kind of shift uh, in the. Way in which we look at the mission of these places to engage much more closely with the educational system in the country, Uh, and that was one of their central findings. So I think there is a really broad awareness of that nationwide.
7: I just wanted to say that I think I think the media has a lot, and I'm not anti-media, but I think many times they are talking about the dangers. Of playing out in your backyard, and your and the parents can't always be there. They're having to work. It's uh the media, I think, hurts the kids' exploration and freedom outside.
1: You, you're talking about from a, uh, sort of a safety perspective of yeah, of, of, the safety
7: of, of the kids. Okay. You know, is it safe to be outside in your backyard? Somebody going to come grab you? You know, it's just uh, you can't take your eyes off your child, even at the playground, for more than You know, somebody could come and grab them. And if I had young children, even grandchildren, it would scare me to death. Yeah.
1: I'd love to, again, uh, I want to hear some more initial reactions and then come back to that. But that's a place where, as a parent, as I'm reading, and there's a kind of a couple chapters in here that kind of has that same critique of the media, and uh, it's really not as bad as the media makes it out to be, and and the safety issues aren't as real. But as a parent, um, I kind of read that and said, well, yeah, okay, but I'm still going to watch my kid. Uh, And and has that perception been so internalized that at this point it doesn't even matter what the, if the media says w- w- where they go with it? Um, a lot of parents still feel that way. And it was interesting also because when the author was talking about his own experience with his own children, he said, "Yeah, I'd let them go to the edge of where you know I couldn't hear them still, but I could still see them," and he wasn't willing to let them go much further than that, even with the critique that he made of of uh, of the safety issues and the, and the fear that's out there. So I I, I thought that was kind of interesting, and I'd love to come back to that as a theme as well because I think it's a a good one, an important one.
8: I grew up in a small town. And when I was growing up, I treated the whole town as my backyard. And they were building things, and I'd go play in the dirt piles of where they were building, and we probably weren't supposed to be there, but we were there. And now, even in my hometown, that idea has gone away. Like, you have your yard but your neighbor's yard is not your yard. You can't go play in there without getting in trouble. And that mentality has shifted a lot since I grew up. Mm-hmm.
9: Thanks. Ken Vorce from Great Smoky Mountains Institute, Tremont. And I want to applaud you guys for doing this. This is great. This is kind of what we do all the time and mm-hmm. something we've been drumming about for many years. And so, and it's great to see that it's now in the uh, mainstream. Richard's book has done a lot to do that there was a national conference a few years ago when the book first came out, and I was able to go to that, and people from around the country talking about this issue, and it's becoming mainstream, and all the things y'all are talking about, um, you know, are very real, I, I and I thought I'd speak to a couple of them, and then had a couple ideas about things we could do um, I grew up in the suburbs of Dayton, Ohio. We didn't have a lot of woods around us, but there were railroad tracks and there were those rough places around about that all I had to do was be home before the streetlights came on, and then I wouldn't be in trouble. And my parents didn't know where I was and were afraid to do that today. Um, we've done some sessions with, uh, with parents and would love to do more community group discussions about how to make this work. And I know um, one of the first reactions we have sometimes from parents is, Oh, you're telling me I'm raising my kids wrong. And and a little bit of guilt maybe about that. And had this one dad one time say, You're right, we've got this stream behind the house and we don't even let the kids go out there and play in it. And uh, we need to do that more. And he says, I got an idea walkie-talkies so they got their kids a walkie-talkie and 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 i think the walkie-talkies were more for mom and dad than the kids but uh you know he they became comfortable he came back and told me later they become comfortable with the kids going out and playing in the creek and going a little further if they could Get in touch with mom and dad. So there's ways we can, can overcome some of those fears and still feel like we're doing the responsibility with the kids. Um, I wanted to mention a little bit about your point regarding what about the environmental concerns and, and we're in a national park where we can't tear things up and do that, but still we still recognize in the programs we do where we bring kids out to our programs, um, from all over the place and, and have, have seen those hyperactive kids that the teachers say, this kid's a mess in the classroom, but when they get out there, they're totally different, and they're learning, and they're engaged. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, But anyhow, um, I'm also involved with a national organization called the Association of Nature Center Administrators, and nature centers around the country are really big into trying to figure this out. And one of the th- big discussions has been, can we on our nature center or in our communities have some of those places where kids can build forts and can play in the dirt pile. You know, there's all sorts of studies about how they were building this big fancy playground and had all this stuff in here, and they came over on the weekend to see what was going on, and all the kids are playing on the dirt pile yeah. nearby and the need for kids to do that. kind. So the people are having discussions about um, finding appropriate places for kids to explore and beat around and get dirty one of the best comments I had from a kid that was in one of our programs in the past year or two, um, a, a teacher told me this. Uh, she said uh, they were getting ready to go, and the girl said, "Yeah, I was looking at all my dirty clothes, and I was just, I was remembering how they all got dirty." And I thought, <laughs> "That's great, you know, if our kids are getting dirty, some good things are happening." So, um, and I'd love to tell, talk more about our the kind of things we do with engaging kids in the park and how we can do that more with Knox County Schools. But, uh, again, really excited to hear this discussion going on with folks.
1: Uh, And we we will definitely come back to kind of the the question of, uh, well, what's it mean for us as educators? What's it mean for us as as parents in terms of allowing kids learning opportunities around nature? But let's get some more initial reactions, and then um, let's get into a couple other uh, areas.
10: Um, Someone was talking earlier about the, uh, you know, the fear – letting your kids out far and another problem another issue is is uh, I, i feel is planning i mean when you when you have neighborhoods and suburbs and there's uh the lots are real small there aren't any trees on them and um the uh the roads um are you know have heavy traffic and the traffic's moving really quickly uh oftentimes there's not sidewalks um it it's not a fun place for, for grown ups who can be a lot easier, you know, to see uh, fr- by motorists than small children. And, um, I just, I know, I know a lot of parents that that's, you know, they put a fence in their yard because they're worried that maybe a ball will roll off into the street and the kid will run out and, you know, so.
1: And that, and that leads to that compartmentalization that the, the young one was talking about before where, you know, okay, now this is mine and that's yours and let's not cross that fence. And, and it sort of leads to that cycle as well. Other initial thoughts?
11: I will tell you the walkie-talkie idea does work because I did that with my oldest child and it's the two-way radio and you can check in at any time and say, okay, where are you at? But um, I'd also like to speak to the, some of the things that are going on in the city. Um, Fort Kidd in downtown, great playground. It seems kind of natural. It's got the rocks and the wooden structure. And they built a new playground down on the park there, World's Fair Park. I took my kids down there. They hated it. I don't want to play here. I don't like it. It's ugly. They will only play at the Fort Kidd. So we need to be thinking about how we're building our parks. I came from a meeting last night with Knox County Parks and Recreation. They're planning a new park in our area. It's going to have a completely natural play area formed from rocks and trees and no metal play structure, they said. And everybody was cheering because it's such a great idea to just let kids have a natural area. But I will tell you, being the younger generation with the younger kids, there's an unwritten set of rules that I think needs to be dispelled with parents. There's all these rules. If you want to be a good mommy, these are the things you have to do. And one of them is you can't let your kids play outside unsupervised. And it's a huge fear and one of those rules that you don't break. And I asked my friends about this after I read the book, and they were like, yeah, we. I I don't have time to sit outside with my kids all day. I've got dinner and all this other stuff to do. So their kids don't play outside. So I think we need to figure out some sort of marketing plan to say, "Hey, it's okay to let your kids play outside."
7: Mm-hmm.
1: There's also, a, you know, it's interesting, and it, it talks a little bit about it in the book. But there's also sort of the, you know, a, a generational thing in terms of um, how kids how kids learn, how kids interact with their environment, how kids interact with their uh, both their natural environment and their um, you know their their electronic environment, and uh, there's something of a um, a more uh, sense of urgency and immediacy and instant gratification that the author talks about it, uh, uh, to some extent, talks about it in terms of this um, uh, the quote from D.H. Lawrence about a know-it-all state of mind. Um, I have two young boys, a, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. We came from Boston, Massachusetts, and we lived in the city. So we didn't uh, have as many opportunities for them to interact with their natural world. So we came here, and, and last spring, the Parks and Recreation Department put on a, uh, a day of fishing out at Carl Cowan Park. And we said, what a great opportunity for our kids. They've never been fishing, so we'll go and, and we'll do this. And um, so we get up. It's a gorgeous day here in East Tennessee. It's beautiful. Uh, we get up early. We get out there, and um, they have rods, and they have bait, and they have it all set up for us. And we get it all ready, and uh, we're having a great time. We cast it out. And uh, my 9-year-old, he, he puts his fishing rod out there. The barber's up there. About 30 seconds later, he goes, Dad, this stinks. I haven't even caught a fish yet. <laughs> and there's this sense of urgency and immediacy and and I realized that I hadn't managed expectations appropriately but I said okay it may take a little bit longer than that to to make it happen but there is you know they're used to this video game world and this computer world where things happen instantly and instantaneously and part of what the author talks a little bit about is that uh, ability to slow down a little bit, that ability to to take a deep breath when you're when you're out interacting with the natural world, and uh, the the ability to um, take some time, and that that's an important aspect of kids interacting with uh,
3: with nature. So I don't know if anyone had thoughts or reactions to that. Um, I would like to say that I think it begins with parents. I know we're all so hustled and bustled and. Um, we gotta get this done. We gotta get that done. But if we allow ourselves to just take a little time, it says in the back of the book, what we could do with our kids. Um, if we could set aside some time for them to go out and, and play and just have a good time, nothing structured, just have a good time. Um, I think it, things will get better if, if the parents realize that you need to slow down, take a deep breath. But everything is so structured, and we just have to realize that we do need to take a deep breath and just sit back and say, well, we need to do this. You know, we very rarely, he doesn't mention this in the book, but we don't get to sit around the table and have dinner together anymore. But we do need that family time. And part of that is going outside, having fun, and discussing things.
7: And I wonder if it's more difficult to connect kids to science, education, and even math, To get kids connected to thinking in these ways if they don't have the hands-on experience of uh, just free time working with stuff uh, with their hands out in nature. And how many kids that grow up in the city don't know what the Milky Way looks like and don't understand that it's supposed to be visible because they've never seen it?
2: I'd like to just say a little comment and and then just to toss another topic out that was discussed in the book. Not a lot, but it was mentioned. Uh, The first thing I share with some of my teachers uh, as we go out and work in some of the schools and we do some staff development is we talk about screen time and uh, where we are in this nation with screen time. And what I share with them is that uh, A.C. Nelson tells us that children spend 900 hours a year in school and fifteen hundred with forms of media. So who's teaching our children? Uh, so that's a point I'll I'll just bring up. Another thing that they discuss in the book is is really that we become disconnected with our food sources, and and I really think that's an important part that we don't need to miss. We've talked a lot about physical activity and being active and and, and really engaging in our environment, but many of our children uh, don't know how potatoes are grown. They don't know. They they see the cans, and they they're they're not even familiar with vegetables and fruits. And so, that's another one of those consequences um, of obesity.
1: Uh, we'll go here, and then I want to come back to this question of education and how we how we, you know, what implications does this thesis have for us as educators in the public education system?
6: Being at East Tennessee, we have some fabulous resources beside Tremont. We have IMS Nature Center, which is an unbelievable resource, the UT Trial Gardens. There are a lot of things beside our parks that we can do with children. And um, what I wanted to ask, do we still do field trips for school groups? I know learning with busloads of kids is a limited, you know, proposition, but it can expose them to some things that they can come back maybe with their parents uh, you know if they go and see things and be outside and then and then get their parents to come back uh, with them on a smaller scale learning, but I wondered if there 's budgetarily speaking, is there any field trips available? Do we still do those in Knox county?
1: we do um, interestingly well uh, uh, there 's just there 's been a recent um, uh, piece of uh, regulatory guidance that 's been sent to us about school fees that actually may have some impact on this, But we do. We have, we have school field trips. Uh, we do um, lots of different types of field trips. I mean, kids go to the theater. They go to different things. But they also go, a lot of our schools do a, a major trip to a place like, um, like perhaps to Wesley Woods or, or other places like that. At a, at a point in time, usually fourth or fifth grade, um, but lots of other smaller things that they can do as well that are that are local. The regulatory guidance that we 've received is that a free and appropriate education in the state of Tennessee means that we can 't charge fees anymore um, to for anything that happens during the school day. Um, we can 't require fees; we can request them, but we can 't require them um, and we may get some we may get some change to that guidance over time. But that's the most recent guidance that we received. And that may have, uh, uh, unfortunately, may have uh, a negative impact on things like field trips and other stuff like band and things like that, but uh, we'll, we'll work through that and we'll work on that because we do think. And and I, I guess that's that leads into where I wanted to go next, which is around what about public education? What about um, how we work in our schools? And um, uh, it's interesting to me because this was this book was uh, a book that we did a book study with uh, before I a couple of years ago before I came here. Our our science teachers and our curriculum specialists in science did a book study on on this particular book a couple of years ago. And so they're very familiar with the concepts here and the precepts here and I think largely agree with the notion of um, the importance of experiential learning. Um, and experiential learning can take a lot of different forms, uh, one of which is learning in a natural environment and learning uh, out in nature. It can, it can take lots of other forms as well, but that's one that I think is, is important and interesting. And, and I think a lot of our folks, including um, Becky Ash, who is our um, – director of curriculum, uh, came from uh, a science background and came from, uh, she was our supervisor for science before she became our curriculum director. And I think she in particular has lots of enthusiasm for, well, this book specifically, but a lot of the precepts that are, that are um, outlined in it for public education as well. So I'd love to open it up for that conversation. I know Commissioner Norman's a former teacher, uh, uh, one who relied uh, a good bit on experiential learning in, in the sciences. And, and if you have uh, anything to add in that area, any uh, suggestions or recommendations, or to share your experiences as a teacher, I'd love to hear that, but also other reactions or thoughts about what uh, what we can do in public education.
7: Hi, my name is Parsi Gibson. Um, when I'm in when I'm out with my daughter one of the things I like to think about is how can I connect nature wherever we are because so so often I think we think nature now is some place to go to mm-hmm. and not some place that we're in right. so living in the city I try to always connect that with her you know look at this pretty tree but as as far as an education uh, I have an education background and one of the things that I would encourage educators to do is just get the kids outside the school mm-hmm. um there are tons of our schools that have outdoor classrooms that go unused for most of the year. Um, most of the schools are surrounded by some sort of natural setting, and you can really work in um, nature in, across the curriculum. I taught social studies. I would take my kids out, and we would imagine things that we could do um, as settlers. You know, even with a limited one-acre parcel of land, mm-hmm. you know, what trees could we use to make our houses? Um, what resources could we find here in this little little tiny plot? So. You don't have to go to a field trip. You don't have to get kids on a bus. You don't have to sign permission forms. You can walk around the campus and find plenty of stuff in nature
1: Yeah, that's a great point um, and more so here than probably in a lot of places I mean when I uh, coming from Boston Massachusetts and when I walked outside a school out of the front door of a school in Boston after visiting you know there's a brick wall there's a building when I walk outside you know of, of Gibbs Elementary School and you walk out to the playground and there's this majestic mountains in the background and you walk outside of uh, walk out the front door of Rita Elementary School and there's a working farm right across the street and there's cows you know 100, yard, 100 yards away I my, my, it's, you know, it takes my breath away sometimes. The, the, there are incredible opportunities like that uh, here in East Tennessee that that I think we have um, the the opportunity to take advantage of that that really you don't have uh, you know in lots of other places around the country as well. So that's a, that's a great point.
12: Uh, my name is Kevin Kennard. Um, I live here in Knoxville, and I am not an educator, but I am a parent. I guess I'm an educator in the sense that I do yes, homework <laughs> with four kids every yes, night, you but. Are. Uh, yeah. Um, I have read the book and, uh, in a perfect world, I think that would be required reading for every parent, for every educator, and for every public official. Because this does, at some point, come down to priorities, what we can do with our children. And to that point, I would like to point out something that, that I found in reading this book and then came home even closer to me. Uh, somewhere in the midst of the, of, uh, Richard Lou's book, He talks about how standardized test scores, which, and I know that's a uh, a contentious topic, but it is the world we live in, I believe, okay? Uh, the test scores improve significantly with kids, with children that are exposed to this type of outdoor experience. Uh, and he cites some pretty significant statistics. About uh, 10 days ago, I had breakfast with uh, two middle school science teachers from Lebanon, Tennessee, that taught in public school. I actually had breakfast with them at Tremont. And we got to talking about this whole topic. Uh, they both told me that they had had their children up at Tremont experiencing these things in the past year or so and that not every child could go for whatever reason. But of those that went and spent that time that week up there, they had a 69% better, uh, set of scores on both science and math on the state standardized test. So, my, my thesis is this. I love what this book has to say about getting kids out. That's all touchy-feely, but it is great. It's very important. But if you want to see where the rubber meets the road, it not only is a good thing, but it's a productive thing. So as resources go, as time goes, where we put our children, I don't think you can argue with the fact that this gets results.
8: I think another way um, that we can reach out to our kids, it touches a little bit on what she said about doing outdoor classrooms, is school gardens or, you know, community gardens. And Anissa had commented about, you know, our kids have a disconnect between our food you know, where it comes from and when we actually consume it. I I work with children, you know, every day who they don't even know what flour is, you know, let alone, you know, where our food comes from and things like that. So being able to implement, you know, school gardens, community gardens, things that where we can teach our kids math, science, and also nutrition because obesity is, is a huge problem here in in East Tennessee as well as across the the country. So just being able to do, you know, outdoor activities, that's nature. And then, um, I think that we also really need to commend Coordinated School Health for their efforts in, in all of the health education that they do. Um, Coordinated School Health is actually, you know, on kind of the chopping block at government or at the state level. So if you could contact your legislators and let them know that Coordinated School Health is such a huge Um, benefit to tennessee it's one of two states i think that's been nationally recognized so um we really need to keep coordinated school health here in our state to you know help with these issues help address these issues
1: anisa and i would appreciate that (laughs) and lisa anisa in a special way commissioner Norman, do you have uh do you want to have any
13: thoughts I'm Tony Norman, and um, Knox County Commission. uh, Taught in Knox County schools for 30 years um, in the natural sciences, and one of uh, one of the the main focus of uh, focus. What's the plural of focus? Foci. The foci (laughs) of of. my efforts uh, had to do a lot of times with uh, outdoor activities and and so i taught ecology and biology and environmental science um i i love this discussion i think that schools uh, certainly have an opportunity to have uh, to create more access it's uh, to me it's very much about access with the way that our cities uh, the the way our city has been relatively unplanned in, uh, in 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 reference to natural spaces and open spaces, a lot of kids just don't have access, and um, and so I think there's opportunities certainly for the school system with their uh, considerable acreages of open spaces to to make those, uh, as Parsi said, available and even more desirable from a uh, from an environmental point of view. There's uh, programs. Uh, what the National Wildlife Federation had a program for a while that was called Schoolyards to Habitats programs. And I don't know whether that's still active, uh, but um, I've talked to Becky Ash about it, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly there's an awareness of it. And um, so that's one thing that I hope that the schools would do uh, sometime, maybe possibly in the near future, uh, realize that, that these... Um, These spaces, kids need to play. They need to have some areas for, for, you know, the traditional types of play and playgrounds and stuff. But certainly, these open spaces and uh, made available to them would be very helpful. Uh, On the uh, on another side, the sort of political policy side of uh, the issue, we have in Knox County uh, because of of our geography, uh, steep slopes and. Creeks and uh, and of course we're aware that you don't want to probably go down to the creeks and dam them, dam them up because there's signs there that say do not touch the water, and so so that presents a bit of a problem. So it's incumbent on all of us to to help with these issues of of water quality and uh, all of these combined issues. And I'm a steep slopes guy. Some of you all probably have heard of that issue in the papers and stuff. So those are all connected. Uh, uh, I appreciate your participation and your help in all those issues.
1: And uh, we're just about out of time. I want to be respectful of people's time. Uh, We might have time for just maybe one or or two more quick comments, and then I, I, I want to give my colleagues an opportunity to say a final word, and we'll wrap things up.
0: I have a very quick comment um, to coordinate with what you said and what you said. Um, There are programs like Walking Works for Schools, and I'm wondering if the Knoxville schools, any of them participate in that program.
2: Yes, we do have many of our schools that uh, participate in Walking Works for Schools, Mm -hmm. and we are really encouraging more classroom physical activity and, of course, active recess, and Mm -hmm. uh, we are doing our best with the 90-minute physical activity law.
0: Great. Thank you. And I really think that would work really well with school schoolyard gardens and classrooms outside and things like
14: that. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Ashley Blum, and next to me is Marissa Lane. We're getting our master's right now in education at Johnson, and our thesis actually comes off of this book. Um, what we're doing is we're going to um, compare, we kind of made a, what we call a nature awareness inventory, and we ask questions about how much they've done outside, their attitude t- towards nature, and some other things, and this has definitely been helped by some professors that are very interested. And then we're going to compare that to their science test scores and just see if, you know, the higher they score on the Nature Awareness Inventory, the higher their science score should be. Um, And so we are just looking at at that because we kind of think that obviously the more time they spend in nature, the more understanding they should have of it, a better, more well-rounded knowledge of their physical environment. Um, And we think, too, that will lead to... Um, a better understanding of their, um, their role in their environment, both their role in sustaining the physical environment, which is a big deal now with all the Go Green campaigns and understanding the impact of even one person recycling and things like that, but also their role in, I guess, our social, I guess you could say environment, their role as a global citizen, which, um i feel like may go back to the issue of the you know my art is mine yours your yard is yours we don't go beyond our fences kind of thing and um so we just found out about this today though actually and we skipped school to come so <laughs> <laughs> wow,
1: <laughs> how do we feel about that not... we asked
14: permission first don't worry um We're but yeah so we just i mean it's just really interesting to us because of that and i don't know if we'll find anything significant or not but um well, I just think the benefits are endless, you know, just the mental health, the physical health, the social health. I mean, everything just goes back to this, and I just, I really have enjoyed this uh, this time. For sure. Thank you so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa, Anissa, you want to say a closing thought
2: I'll just say one thing that concerns me, and I'll leave this with you, is how do we create desire to be outside with our children? Believe it or not, there are some kids that don't enjoy being outside, and it's very hard for me to understand that, perhaps because they've grown up in a culture of being indoors, raised indoors. And and so that, that's the question that I, I like to bring up. How do how do we be more purposeful and, and foster a love for for the outdoors? And thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you so much for allowing me to come today. Um, i really enjoyed myself. Um, I'd like to leave this last thought with you. What can we do as adults to allow children to see the good in nature? And what can we do as educators? I think we're doing some things. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> we're doing, we're doing, we're doing some things, but what can we do, um, to help children out to, so they can be good at science and, and so they can really get involved in nature. So what can we do?
1: And I want to thank you as well. It's been a great conversation. I guess I want to leave with the, the uh, thinking about the concept of sustainability. Thinking about the concept of uh, that the author raises around who will be the next generation of stewards uh, of our of our planet and our, and of our environment and and uh, and carry this issue along uh, as we talk about the things that we need to do as adults. As we talk about the things that we need to do as educators, where do we go from here? And I was intrigued by the, the last bit of the book, which talked about uh... each of us actually it's it's woven throughout but uh, emphasized at the end that each of us have our what the author calls turtle tales um, uh... of you know our experiences as children as children that were formative in our lives um, that led to our interest in this issue and our uh... our understanding of the importance of this issue and i'll share with you one of mine very briefly and um, uh... Well, first of all, the, the, the McIntyre uh, family tradition of fishing started with me, I guess, when, um, I, again, I grew up kind of in, in, in the city a little bit, and uh, we had a fishing derby every year, and uh, unfortunately it was in this, this reservoir in this relatively urban area, and they had to put stock the fish that morning because if they stocked them the night before, they'd be floating by the morning. Um, so, so that wasn't one of my form of experiences. Um, but one of them that was was um, there was... Uh, uh, an area not far from my home that was a, um, a, a, a preserve. It was by the Metro. What was called in Boston the Metropolitan District Commission. It was a large wooded area that was uh, that was set aside, and uh, we, it was a trail that went up. And it was it just happened to be at a very high um, part, of, probably the highest part, uh, sort of altitude wise in the region. And so we went um, uh, a lot. Uh, into that woods, and one of the things that was just uh, extraordinary about it was it was a very short hike to a very short um, uh, sort of uh, rock formation, and you only had to climb about probably 75 or 100 feet up, and then you stood on the top of the world. I mean, you stood, and you could see uh, from this vantage point Probably about eight miles uh, around, and you could see the entire well. You could see the entire city of Boston, um, and, and you could see almost to the to the Boston Harbor from that from that vantage point. And that was one of the, the sort of the formative moments for me of of walking through this wilderness and getting to this uh, to this you know this short peak there. You could just see, and you felt like you were at the top of the world. So I leave you with that to say, um, let's think about as parents, let's think about as educators, how can we provide children with those opportunities to have those kind of formative moments in their lives so that this conversation can be sustained uh, to the next generation. And I thank you for being here today.
7: Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, reference librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, Visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.